As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. We are recording today with the U.S. Women's National Team having reaffirmed their domination of North America. Joe and I will be talking in depth about the USA's victorious CONCACAF W Championship campaign on tomorrow's show, but that's for North America. Over in Europe, where everyone is apparently about to spontaneously combust, we aren't (laughs) yet sure who will reign supreme, but we do know who will be in the knockout rounds of the 2022 Euros. Here with me to break down those matchups and take a look back at the results that have shaped the tournament is a man who I have to believe is enjoying Ryan Bailey not being here to talk about a strong England national team. It's Graham Ruffin. Hi, Graham. Hi, Taylor. I am frankly shocked that Ryan has passed up the opportunity right? to gloat. Scotland aren't even at this tournament. This is an absolute <laughs> gimme for him. England are possibly going to win a major tournament. Scotland aren't even there. Where are you, Ryan Bailey? On vacation. That's where he is. Cruising around Europe, living it up, and avoiding uh, getting to talk about a very, very good England team. I have wondered on more than one occasion if you are quietly enjoying that you haven't had to deal with Ryan <laughs> talking gleefully. But that does set the stage for him to come back in in the semis of the final to then act as though he's been here the whole time. That is a gamble for him, though. So if, he, if England win the whole thing and he waits until that moment... <laughs> to come into the conversation then obviously he has won that gamble but if they lose and or they don't win the Mm -hmm. tournament then i win that gamble my friend (laughs) we'll we'll see how it plays out if england do end up winning would you like to sit that pot out graham would that make you feel better yeah i mean i am planning on expiring from the heat on that day so (laughs) pencil it in i actually since that's been such a talking point i alluded to it in the introduction um Like, this is a very maybe obvious thing for some, but it's a thing I consistently forget. Graham, like, there is heat that we've talked about uh, a lot, and you've got, like, the heat in Arizona that Joe will will readily mention, but Joe Joe also has uh, air conditioning in his home. Everyone has air conditioning. That is less so a thing over in the UK and in Europe. Is that fair to say? 
Oh, absolutely. That's why this is this is so difficult. And I could understand why people in places like Phoenix, Arizona, Joe, mm-hmm. would laugh at what is considered a heat wave in the UK, in particular in Scotland. So in, in London, it's 40 degrees for the first time ever today, which has, has been discussed as a factor to bring it around to football was a factor last night in the final group stage games. There were, there were uh, what do you call them, cooling breaks for breaks to, mm-hmm. for uh, water breaks for people to take on water. So there has been a football side of th- this as well. In Scotland, it's been about 32, 34 but our houses are designed to keep the heat in so we are all living in hot boxes at the moment with no air conditioning and that is why i went and sat in my car for 20 minutes last night which obviously has air conditioning just to give myself uh, some relief from this this uh, relentless heat that we're experiencing Man, I didn't think about that, Graham, because I know about the AC, and I should note when Graham's saying 40 degrees, he's saying Celsius. 40 degrees Celsius is, uh, by Google's calculation, 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So maybe that uh, resonates a bit more with American listeners. But I remember uh, like our heating bill over here in Virginia would always uh, go up a lot. Or the electricity bill would always go up a lot in the winter months. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a contractor, and he was saying that a lot of homes in the South that were built a while ago were built to let the heat out <laughs> so that basically you could get a really nice breeze and it would make things cooler. Did not occur to me that your homes would be functioning the opposite, which I'm going to assume is lovely in the winter, less so when it's 104 degrees outside. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that my the walls of my house are packed with sheep's wool i am 99 percent <laughs> sure that is what's in them which is not ideal in a heat wave i appreciate that you all use every part of the sheep graham that makes me very happy <laughs> we'll stop talking about the weather but did just want to address that one up front and we will talk about the the knockout round games the ties uh, to be excited about but first let's take a look back since last we spoke graham we know the teams that, are, that have made it out of the group uh we know the teams that did the opposite of that uh starting off i just wanted to ask if there are any favorite moments for you from this tournament or any favorite games or even just individuals either that we'll continue to see or that we won't see going forward at this mm. point? So maybe this is recency bias because this only happened last night. But in terms of a, a, a memorable moment, I thought Belgium's win over Italy was mm-hmm. was right up there. Not much was expected of them at all coming into this tournament. Their, their program, I know on the men's side, Belgium are, are they currently ranked number one in the world? They're certainly up there all the time, but their women's program is still at an early stage. And so for them to get through the to the quarterfinals, but they have never managed that before. This is only their second major tournament. So that is a, a massive achievement. And for them to put away a talented, yes, they had a very disappointing tournament, Italy, but that, that Italy team was very much nailed on to qualify from, from a Group D and they didn't. And Belgium took that place. I do think they'll reach their ceiling in the quarterfinals against a good Sweden team. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. But the impact that 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 moment against Italy could have, the the, the shiny winner, that that could be pretty profound in Belgium for years to come. That's the sort of thing that can spark interest in a a country where maybe there isn't the biggest interest in women's football and that, that these tournaments have been so good for that over the last few years. So maybe Belgium, we should look to them in the next decade or so to to be a bit of a, a superpower. I wouldn't say, just looking at another favourite moment, I wouldn't say it was my favourite moment for obvious reasons, but the first half of uh, England-Norway will stick in the memory for a long time. It was so ridiculous, you could almost hear people in the stadium laughing, not out of arrogance, 
just because it was so surreal. I don't think anyone knew how to react. It was a match that was billed as one of the matches of the of the tournament so far because it was two teams that were seen as contenders. A lot of people thought it was going to be a tight encounter. And so for England to be 6-0 up by half time, and deservedly so, it wasn't exactly a, a flattering scoreline. They were utterly, utterly dominant in that match. Yeah, just felt very surreal. And so I'll, re- I'll remember that for, for a long time. Um, in terms of anyone that I am sad to see eliminated, I'm disappointed that we really didn't see anywhere close to the best of Italy. I know I've just, I've already mentioned them, but to go into slightly more depth, they were, they have players that are capable of so much better, particularly in the attack where they've got people like uh, Girelli and Giuliano. And that connection in particular between Girelli and Giuliano should have give, given them something to build around, but they were, they were poor in all three matches they, they played. They deserved to go home. And it says a lot that I felt the best we saw of Italy was in the second half of their first game against France, which is a game they lost 5-1. So that, that kind of, uh, that kind of tells you a lot. Graham, Individuals. I, am, I, want to, I want you to know that, that you're the best right now because you've got me fired up just from those opening comments. All three of those games, all three of those things are now things. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was awesome. And that was interesting. And that was fascinating. And now I'm really excited to talk about the rest of this tournament with you. So just one more player that I would highlight in terms of who, who's been, who had a disappointing tournament. This may be a mm. fairly obvious one, but I think after all the excitement around Ada Hegerberg being back in the Norway team, you would have to say that she had an underwhelming tournament. And obviously it's not purely down to her. That Norway team was a bit of a mess. Um, I read today, just before we started recording, that the, the head coach, Sogren, he has stepped down uh, amid a bit of public pressure and a, a, some public backlash about the performances. But Hegerberg in particular, as I say, just because there so, was so much excitement about her being back in the national team after so long, she didn't score against Northern Ireland, although she did play reasonably well in that game. But then she was anonymous in the games really against... England and Austria had a, had a few chances against Austria, but never really felt like she was playing at her best. And when you consider just how good she is, I think yeah, that has to go down as a big disappointment. Yeah, she has a moment in that Austria-Norway game when she, in the second half, I think, she thinks she's going to get a foul and goes down like like she's been shot. And I don't mean as in screaming in pain, writhing. I mean that it's this like almost comical slow motion, just complete like falling over on her face. And then looks around and realizes no call has been given. And not only that, but the player that she's supposed to be tracking is now running away with the ball and has to sort of get up and sprint back 20 yards. And just that really did stand out to me as like you were expecting a call and then to be able to kind of slowly walk forward and get into attacking position. And now you're having to work defensively, which feels like a good metaphor for Norway's performance as a whole. And that Austria-Norway game really was probably one of my favorite games of the group stage for very, very selfish, self-interested reasons. Because when you and I did this show last week, Graham, this was one we talked about how it felt like it was expected to be England-Norway getting out of this group uh, when we did the previews. But that that 8-0 loss to England that you've already talked about, it seemed like it was going to be really difficult for Norway to get their their heads back on. And I And I'll pause here to talk about a different moment. Do you remember... Uh, it was it was like a decade ago, probably at this point. Uh, it was Dejan Stekovic, I think, has like the goalkeeper takes a goal kick long and he hits it first time from midfield yes. and scores. Do you remember that? For Inter Milan, yeah. There you go. And um, Daryl uh, wrote about that one at the time, uh, that it was the equivalent of like being slapped on the hands with a ruler and just someone saying like, no, like that's what that <laughs> felt like. And Norway starting the tournament off by kind of crushing Northern Ireland and everyone thinking like, okay, this is the Norway we expected. Hagerberg's uh, back. They're going to be really good. And then there was the no moment of that just destructive win. And, and I was really curious how they would pick it up if they'd be able to pick it up against Austria or if Austria would sense that vulnerability. And I think they did just that. 
because I saw kind of what we expected. It was Norway in there, 4-4-2, pretty rigidly in those two banks of four with a lot of space in between. I saw Austria pressing them pretty intensely, but they were in more of a 4-1-4-1. They kept their fullbacks wide, their wingers wide, and that meant Norway were really stretched across the pitch and then were still a 3v2 in the midfield that Austria kept utilizing and kept sort of attacking through the middle. And it just felt like Norway were never really able to pick themselves up for that game. And I just wonder how much of that was. You lose 8-0 to England. It's tough to feel like the the story of this tournament is going to be, yeah, we lost 8-0, but then we fought back and ended up winning this one. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they just sort of lost all confidence at that point. Yeah, I mean, not to give ourselves too much credit, but we, no, we kind can. of we, can. we we kind of <laughs> flagged it in the, the last time that we talked, yeah. talking about Norway and Austria, where we said the warning signs were there from Austria. Austria were capable of doing to Norway what they did to England. I know Austria lost that game, but it's the, the toughest match that England have had so far, where there was a disconnect between the midfield and the attack. Norway had that problem against England. They didn't handle the press from uh, Austria well either, and that was something Austria did well against England too. And so the warning signs were there, and we also flagged the fact that Norway seemed like, yes, of course, an 8-0 defeat in a major tournament is going to be a tough one, but they seemed like a broken team after that game. Their body language in that second half was very, very poor. All their top players, Hegerberg in particular, um, a lot of shrugging of shoulders, and then the remarks after the game, which I, I, I brought up the last time we spoke, didn't suggest that there was going to be a bounce back. So... While before the tournament, if you told me Austria get out of this group ahead of Norway, I would have been surprised. Let's not revise too much. But after the the, the defeat to England, yeah, that, that it pretty much figured that, that Austria got that win and they're the ones that come out of Group A. Yep. So we've got England, Austria coming out of Group A. Uh, we said goodbye to Norway and Northern Ireland. Group B, Germany and Spain, as expected. Denmark and Finland on their way out. Denmark, a team that I think w- when last we spoke, didn't feel like they'd really kind of kicked into gear, hadn't really got going. We wanted to see if they could be more aggressive, set up a higher defensive line, be more sort of proactive in the way they were playing and make Spain uncomfortable. And I'm not sure we saw them do that against Spain. Instead, I feel like we saw them go pretty direct. It felt like it was a lot of long ball for Peniel Harder. And even there, it almost worked on a couple occasions because she is just that good at running in between the lines and making things happen. Some good saves and some good sort of last-ditch defending from Spain allowed them to get that late win. So a better performance from Denmark, but maybe just a little bit too late against a strong Spanish team. Yeah, I certainly give Denmark more benefit of the doubt than, than Norway because this was the, the group of death and these the, the two teams that have come out of this group are probably the two teams that you would have picked before the start of the tournament. So it was always going to be tough for them, but we didn't see enough from them in terms of a, a solid game plan. You're right, the, the plan against Spain seemed to be very much, let's get the ball to Peniel Harder and uh, see what she can do with it on her own <laughs> in the opposition half. There wasn't really all that much behind it. And the thing was, Spain were totally there for, for the taking. Yeah. Spain only get the winning goal in, in, uh, in stoppage time once Denmark are pressing a little bit harder. But I felt Spain's approach was slightly one-dimensional. They went completely the opposite direction from the Germany game where it was kind of pass, pass, pass and no end product. I felt like Spain were flipping crosses into the box a little bit too often against Denmark. And Denmark found that relatively easy 
to deal with and and the space was there for them to get in behind the the Spanish fullbacks which has maybe been a problem particularly on the the right side of the of the Spanish defense with uh, battle which will we will spoke we'll speak about mm. that with regards to the England uh, Spain quarterfinal coming up but the, the opportunity was there for Denmark and I, I feel like they they didn't take it they didn't put forward a strong enough case so even though I wouldn't have them down as the the poorest team in this competition I don't think they did enough to get into the into the final eight I would agree. I wouldn't have them as one of the poorest. I would have them as maybe one of the more disappointing because I thought that Denmark-Spain game, I checked my notes again. I had it as the one that I was most excited about from the group stage. I thought there was a chance that Germany and Spain, that game would be a little bit dull because it was the two favorites to get out of that group. But in that last game with Denmark and Spain having something to play for, I thought there was going to be some fireworks and a lot of electric pressing and back and forth. And instead, as you said, an, uh, an extra t- or injury time winner, excuse me, was the difference there. But credit to Spain for getting that win and getting out of the group. Group C, Sweden and the Netherlands uh, go through joint tops. Sweden actually on top, but both get the seven points. Switzerland and Portugal each with one. I would say not a ton of surprises with how that group played out. Uh, maybe a few surprises that the Dutch were able to do it with a few players, key players at that missing. But uh, overall, I think we both had Sweden and the Dutch getting out of their group. Yeah, I think this was arguably the the most lopsided group of 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 the four, where there was a clear divide between the best two teams and the sort of inferior two teams. You really needed one of Switzerland and Portugal to rise above the other, and so the fact that they drew in their first game against each other kind of uh, I feel like that ended their chances pretty much yeah. there and then, especially with actually Sweden and the Netherlands also drawing in in their first game. So it kind of created that divide. And I know, I know, Group C was I think that went right down to the last match day right where all teams could still qualify mm-hmm. so that's yep. that's maybe contradicting my point slightly but watching those final two games the the Switzerland Netherlands game which obviously finished 4-1 to the Netherlands and then the Sweden Portugal game which was 5-0 that kind of tells you all you need to know about the the condition on, of this group and how there was a divide between the four teams I'll tease this though I think that Switzerland Netherlands game the final uh game for both teams in the group uh as you said finished four to one but all of the goals in the second half and it was one to one until the 84th minute and then you could tell that the swiss sort of gave up their heads went down the dutch were able to get a couple goals but i think the swiss showed a pretty if not simple then straightforward way to cause the dutch a lot of problems and we will talk about that when we get to the knockout round fixtures uh one more group though to go through you've already talked about a little bit but france on top of group d Belgium getting out of there. Did not expect that one. I did not expect that one. At least Iceland in third. Italy disappointing in fourth. And I agree with you. I think they were the other most disappointing team for me because I thought they could be a dark horse team and spring a surprise. You had the kind of collective spirit of the core of that team, the spine of that team, all playing for the same Juventus uh, squad. And so for them to struggle the way they did, to finish with a negative goal difference, to finish with two losses, and especially to lose to a team like Belgium, which is not to be discourteous to Belgium, but going back to the, the preview, and Graham, it's a point you already hit on, I wanted to emphasize, and I apologize for repeating the same information if people remember it, but one of the examples I gave of where the Belgium program was, was 22-year-old defender Amber Tisiak, who uh, has been playing for her whole life, but is only going pro this summer because she is a Dutch uh, uh 
she teaches Dutch and history, but she's quitting to become a pro player because most of that team or a lot of that team is still semi-professional. So for them to come together and kind of get the collective result over an Italian team that has a lot of professional players in it, all professionals, I believe, in the Italy squad, uh, mm-hmm. I think speaks volumes about what Belgium were able to do. I don't know if they'll be able to do it in the next round, but good on them for even getting there so we can continue to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. They have been the the biggest surprise package of this tournament. I would have had them finishing bottom of this group, actually, yep. behind, not just Italy, but behind Iceland as well, who I think are up there as one of the more disappointing teams in mm-hmm. this tournament because I felt in all three games they actually played some decent stuff. Even in that final group game against France, the 1-1 scoreline is slightly deceptive because they don't get that equalizing goal until I think that was the 99th minute or it might even have been 100th minute that they mm-hmm. got that equalizing goal. So it, it never really felt like Iceland were going through because they needed to win to win that game or for uh, Italy to win their game. But um, yeah, it was... Uh, it was it was a strange group this one Belgium they this is one of the interesting thing about women's football when comparing it to men's the men's game just because you're a superpower in the men's game doesn't necessarily mean that you are a superpower in the women's game and there are some mm-hmm. programs for, in in countries in this tournament so I would also highlight Portugal as well so obviously Portugal have a long uh, standing history and of of being an elite nation football nation on the men's side but their women's program is still at a very early stage and so you hope that some success like Belgium have experienced look turning it back to them you hope that some success like this will just ramp things up in Belgium attract more investment and by the time the next tournament comes around they're they're in an even better place not just to make the final eight as they have at this this tournament but maybe go even further than that I think that's how the the progress happens. Graham, uh, speaking as an American, I have no idea what it's like to have uh, one national team be incredibly good and win a bunch of stuff and one national team not win a bunch of stuff and occasionally <laughs> fail to qualify for World Cups. Uh, but I can relate to the to the Belgian national teams, and uh, I wish the Belgian team the best in their knockout round game. Let's take one quick break, uh, Graham, and then let's get back and talk about some of those knockout round fixtures. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, Graham. I was going to ask you before we got into it, which team are you most surprised to see in the knockout round? But I feel like we've sort of already answered that with yeah. maybe Belgium <laughs> and then maybe Austria. Yes, that, that is correct. I, I yep. think as there's probably a divide between the, those two as well, because Austria do have a bit of pedigree in, mm-hmm. in the women's game, and uh, I don't think Belgium do at all. So yes, absolutely, Belgium, most surprised to see them there. And then big, 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 big gap, then Austria. <laughs> but maybe less surprised to see England and Spain uh, advance to the knockout round, though getting them in the opening round of games is pretty exciting, I think, because this could be a blockbuster game. If we're sort of summarizing the way we would expect these two teams to be, broadly speaking, I think we can say that Spain, from what we've seen, uh, prioritized possession, uh, very yeah. technical, happy to keep the they're ball Spain. moving. <laughs> yeah, they're Spain. Exactly. For England, uh, it's it's a little bit more challenging. And Graham and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording. And basically, it, it just comes down to they're very good at a lot of things because they're very good all around. So they're just a very adaptable squad with a very good coach behind them. Is that a fair summary of both teams, Graham? Yeah, I think that's that's where we landed. And we had to think about that for a little bit because when you, you look at most, I think it's easier with national teams as well because uh, a playing style is often intertwined with a, with a culture. You know, so the, the Spanish style, this, the style of this Spanish na- national team that we've just discussed there is very much intertwined with what it is to be a Spanish football team. And it's similar with the Netherlands, potentially France as well. And and Germany, I would say in the 21st century, their national teams tend to play a similar way. Their club teams tend to play a similar way. But in England, obviously, you maybe don't have that cultural identity. Maybe that is looking at, on the men's side, the the Premier League's fault. And then more recently on the women's side, you have the, the NWSL, which is following a similar route to the Premier League of kind of being the world's league. And you have all the best managers and best players from around the world coming to the English league. So maybe it's more difficult to establish that national style. But in terms of the team that Serena Wiegmann has built just now, yeah, I would say they're an all-round team. They've got a, they've got a strong defence, although I would argue it's not really been tested at this tournament so far. Uh, they can play on the counter-attack, but I also think they've got a lot of technical ability. We saw in that Norway game when Wigman pushes them up. Even just 10 yards up the pitch, they're able to suffocate teams. I think they're good in the wide areas. They've got a physical threat as well with uh, Ellen White and, and even Russell coming off the bench in, in, in the last game against Northern Ireland and scoring a very good header. So they are an all-round team. And that is, I think that's where their, their strength is as, as a unit. Graham, I agree with everything you said about England, but it then begs the question, if they haven't been really tested so far on the defensive side of things, how can Spain make them uncomfortable? Because I would argue in in the games that I've watched of Spain in their entirety, it tends to be Spain with a lot of possession, a few sort of half chances. Eventually, maybe they grind down the opponent, so they make some changes to be more attacking and take the game to the opponent a bit more. But ultimately, I still don't think they've been as adventurous as maybe is required, especially against a strong team like England. Mm. So what do you think Spain can do to cause some problems for England? 
I think the centre of the pitch is where Spain could do quite a bit of damage to England. That that's pretty much the the case against every team that Spain face because it's pretty much where the where they're the strongest. But England in particular could be quite vulnerable here. So Vigman has toggled between a four two three one and a four three three with Kira Walsh in the deepest position and Fran Kirby and Georgia Stanway given the the freedom to attack. And I think that midfield structure against Spain. So in most games where England will have a natural dominance of the ball, that is fine. And Walsh provides enough protection in that position. But I think against Spain, that structure could leave England pretty short-handed. And one of those two attack-minded midfielders, Kirby or Stanway, is going to have to help Walsh out. And sitting on Bonmati in particular, who is the source of so much creativity for Spain, in general, England are going to have to get bodies back because of... The, the way Spain like to attack with three through the middle and then the two fullbacks, which creates this block of five in attack. And sometimes for Spain, that when that five is met with an opposition five, it can get slightly stagnated for them. But if England, if it's a four on five, as England have, have played a, a back four, if that, if they ever get into a situation where they're, they're a, uh, a player light, then that, that could be a problem for England. If they're too bold, they could simply be overwhelmed by the, the players that they're having to cover. Another area that, that Spain have been strong on in, in, in this tournament has been crosses and set pieces. So England have been very um, very strong in defence so far at, the, at this tournament. But as I said, you could argue they've not really had that much of a test. And Spain, yes, they, they can pass you to death, but... Spain have scored four of their five goals at this tournament with headers and, and they like to make late runs into the box. So Millie Bright and uh, Lee Williamson in particular, they just can't allow Spain any sort of space in the area from crosses or set pieces or that is another area where Spain could cause England some problems. Yeah. As I kind of referenced earlier, the other side of this is against Denmark, Spain were a little bit aimless in a lot of their crosses and um, that's maybe what England should be hoping for is that Spain lean a little bit too far into that approach and actually that plays into England's uh, hands if Brighton Williamson are able to handle that. But those are two areas, the centre of the pitch and anything in in the air, anything that Spain can attack with late runs, particularly with a head, that's where England could, uh, could have some trouble. I agree entirely with what you said, and I think that's where an interesting lineup decision will be who starts at left back for Spain. I think that will tell us how they're approaching this one, at least in my mind, because oftentimes when it's uh, Wahhabi as the left back, I see Mapi Leon, the left-sided center back, usually having the most time to kind of put her foot on the ball, look around, look for maybe a cross from sort of a nearer angle, or maybe she's just keeping the ball uh, possession, possession cycling. But I, I see her sort of not slowing things down, but being the one to calm it down to let people get into the right attacking positions. But I do think that slows things down, and I also think it, think it means they use less speed on the wing. And what they did against Denmark, uh, when they're still nil-nil at halftime, they take off Wahabi, they bring on Olga as a left back, uh, someone who I was not familiar with, but now I'm kind of obsessed with, because she was <laughs> far and away the most fun player, I think for me, from an attacking standpoint for Spain. She was the one who... like. Sometimes you see a player who just clearly got very specific instructions and they are doing those specific instructions. And she was clearly told, get involved in the attack, make things happen. 
And so I think within five minutes of coming on, she has a shot from maybe 30 yards out that goes just wide. Then she has another one later on in the half that forces a corner. She ends up getting the assist, but she is bombing forward regularly with the ball at her feet and to just stretch the defense and pull some players out and open up opportunities for other players. And so I think if we see Olga as that starting left back for Spain, that tells me they're going to try to be more attacking, maybe a little bit more direct, but still sort of pinging those crosses in. If we don't, then I think it's going to be more of a slow, cautious Spain trying to build, but trying not to present any vulnerabilities to England on the break, on the counter, transitioning to attack. So I think that's one thing I would keep an eye on for Spain. Graham, for you, what do you think will be the difference maker for England? How can they get through this Spain? How can they cause Spain problems? Well, actually, what you've just discussed there with what Spain do at left back, I think will inform a lot of what England do with, with, with their wingers. So Beth Mead has been one of the, the players of the tournament. I think she's currently the top goal scorer in, in the tournament. She's been playing on the, on the right side of that England attack. They've also had Lucy Bronze at, at right back, who I think has also been one of their, their best players at, at the tournament. I think Lucy Bronze, I mean, this is, this is not a revelation because she's just signed for Barcelona from Manchester City. Is that kind of tells you how good no. she is. But Lucy Bronze is brilliant. She's brilliant at all areas of the game. She can carry the ball forward. She can pass. She can cross. And she has that understanding with Beth Mead, which has been key to how good England have been. So what happens is uh, Lucy Bronze will carry the ball up the pitch. The, the opposition defender will then be left with a decision. Do I close down Lucy Bronze or do I allow her to continue? If the player closes down, then a pocket of space is created for Beth Mead and Lucy Bronze is good enough and technical enough to flip the ball into that space and Beth, Beth Mead is good enough to make count for something, whether that's a goal or, or an opportunity. So that's the, the problem that Spain, or that's the conundrum they're going to have is do they, do they stand off Lucy Bronze and, and Beth Mead or do they press them as Spain tend to do and risk England being good enough technically to play around them. If Spain go for the slightly more conservative approach at left back, then England could shift their uh, their focus to the left wing where they have Lauren Hemp, one of a brilliant player as well, and I think Denmark had some success on that on that side against uh, Ona Battle who has been playing at right back for 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 uh, for Spain and Lauren Hemp should have the pace to to basically smoke battle on on that right side. So I think Spain are going to have trouble regardless of what wing it is that England kind of focus and channel a lot of their play down. But I agree with you, depending on what approach Spain take on that left side, and they've got two decent options, I think that could also inform what England do. Uh, obviously, Spain uh, fell to Germany in the group stage 2-0. And looking at the numbers from that game, Graham, do you think England can learn something from what Germany did? I think they had... Uh, I think significantly fewer possession. I don't have that number in front of me, but I do know, excuse me, 70 to 30 uh, percentage wise for Spain. But I think Germany completed 177 passes. Spain completed 559. Spain had more total shots, a higher XG, and yet Germany resoundingly won that game. Would you be okay as an England neutral? Would you be okay with them sort of sitting off and inviting Spain forward to then look to hit on the break to look on set pieces? Or do you think Serena Wiegmann and England would be wiser to try to take the game to Spain and make them uncomfortable? I think I would go with the... I mean, the answer to that is kind of in, in between. You don't want to be sat too deep and mm -hmm. inviting too much pressure on top of you. But I think that's where Germany got the balance right, where... They did do a lot of that for the match, but they also were very selective in their pressing and they score the the first goal from forcing a mistake from sure. uh, Panos, the, the, the Spanish goalkeeper. So there were moments where Germany were pressing high on Spain. There were clear 
pressing triggers for them in that game. And that's where I think England, that's the right balance for me. There, It would be maybe foolish. It would maybe even play into Spain's hands if England try to play their own possession heavy game where they try and dominate the ball because Spain have just done that more times than England. They're more used to doing that. So maybe you're playing into Spain's hands by doing that. But if you go down the Germany route where you force them to to break through that strong England defence, then maybe you frustrate them, you press them in selective moments, you take your opportunities. I think England have the attackers who are, who are in good enough form to take those opportunities, whether it's Ellen White or even or uh, Beth Mead or uh, Georgia Stanway, Lauren Hemp, or even if you, if, if once the substitutes come off the bench, I think Russo and Toon have been very good for England off the bench as well. So I am leaning towards England getting the better of Spain in this one, but I do believe Spain are going to ask a different question of this England team that we haven't seen at, at this tournament so far. Do you feel like this one has 1-0 written all over it? Yeah, potentially. That feels about right. 1-0 England feels about right. Unfortunately, let's go Spain. Come on, pick up. (laughs) Uh, uh, The other game I want to get to next would be Germany versus Austria. Graham, my prediction for this one, I'll give you a specific prediction. I think we're getting a red card in this game. I'm not sure for which team, but I feel like there's going to be a red card because I think we've got uh, a German team that will press and then attack very uh, quickly via that press. I think Austria have proven themselves capable of doing the exact same. I think both teams... Very happy to be physical and foul as required. And I could see that building up some tension and maybe a couple professional yellows leads to one more yellow leads to a red card. And I could see this game finishing uh, 11 v 10 or even 10 v 10. You never know. But I'm I'm predicting a red card in Germany v Austria. Yeah, I could see that. And I think this game in, in general is going to be very interesting. Austria yep. have been, I know I called Belgium the surprise package, but in terms of a dark horse, I think Austria have have emerged as 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 that dark horse. I raised this in this discussion with you before we started recording. I fear that this is a bad draw for Austria. Now, of course, it's a bad draw because Germany are Germany and Germany are very good. But in terms of the profile of the two teams, in many ways, Austria have done lots of what Germany have done at this tournament. They've been uh, very smart in terms of when they've sat back. They have uh, been selective in their pressing, but very effective in their pressing. They have taken their opportunities. They're very technical on the ball when they need when they need to be. So they are a good team, and I think uh, Irene Furman deserves a lot of credit for what she has done with this Austria team. She's proved herself as one of the the sharpest tacticians in the, in, in the tournament, and I think she more than anyone else on the pitch will make this quarterfinal competitive for Austria. I don't think they're going to get blown off the pitch by Germany. But the problem for Austria is that Germany are just simply better at everything that they do well. And had they gone up against even an England, I think England might be a better team than Germany on the whole. I think England might win this whole thing. But England is is a better matchup for Austria just because of all the reasons I've just said. Germany are a better version of Austria. So I would I would be surprised if Austria won this, which is a shame because they've had a great tournament and in terms of their quality if you were picking four teams they're maybe even good enough to be in that final four, but that's not how tournament football works. It's not how knockout football works, so I'm predicting Germany to come through this one. Man, that's a great shout, Graham, because you're right, like Austria versus Sweden even, Austria versus the Netherlands, I could see them uh, having an easier time. But I just keep going back to that Norway game where Austria did everything they needed to do, but also at least like within, I'm looking at my notes, twice in the opening five minutes in the second half, 
there was a ball played from one Norwegian player, usually a center back to one of the midfielders. And and it was no coming to meet it. It was no checking to. It was standing waiting for the ball. And an Austrian player just sort of popped in, won that ball, and away they went. And they did that routinely to Norway, especially when Norway tried to restart goal kicks short. They would just press them and force them into turnovers, force them into mistakes. And it was just such a panicky performance from Norway. I, I can't really see that happening against Germany. I think Germany will no. be more up for it. I think they've already proven themselves to be a pretty physical team who won't back down from those types of challenges. And it just seems like it's going to be Austria doing what they do really well, but Germany do that thing very well as well and therefore have practiced it a bunch and I think would know how to absorb it and navigate it pretty effectively. So I think this is going to be an interesting one. I could also see it being Germany with a relatively comfortable victory. Yeah, that 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 could that could happen. I think the German midfield is what I ad, I admire most about this team. I've spoken quite a bit about their defence at this tournament, and it has been very impressive. I think Marina Hegering has been one of the the best players at the at the tournament. As I said last week, she embodies a lot of what makes this Germany team good in in terms of her discipline and natural aggression. But I think the genius of this German team, as I say, might be in the midfield with Oberdorf and uh, Lena Magul and De Britz. And I know Spain have Bon Mate and she might be better than the lot as, a, as an individual. But in terms of a midfield unit, I think this is probably the best midfield unit at the tournament because you have Oberdorf, who just covers so much ground. You have the Brits bringing the creativity and then you have the late runs and, and the raw goal threat of uh, Lena Magul. They're good in possession. They're good out of possession. So... I think maybe the midfield might be where Austria just come up a little bit short. That is the in, the sorry the the engine of that that Germany team. And when I look at that midfield, that 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 German midfield, and maybe I'm plotting slightly too far ahead because we're only at the quarterfinal stage. But I am starting to think about semi-final matchups and even final matchups. And at this stage, I would predict a Germany England final. There's a long way to go before then. But if if, if I was Serena Wiegmann, and and she's probably not looking that far ahead, but if she is. That Germany midfield would worry me because I can see them overwhelming England um, in the in the middle of of, of the pitch for the reasons mm-hmm. that I I explained. Spain might do that to England as well. I think Germany might might be a team that that's where they can get the better of everyone in this tournament, including Austria, including England. They've already done it to Spain. So if Germany are going to win this tournament, it's probably going to be because of their midfield. I also hope we continue as we have been and we get a, a, an England-Germany final. I believe that's possible. I forget how they, this plays out. But even if it's not, I want them both to advance uh, without conceding so that we get an England team playing a Germany team with neither team having conceded a goal in the tournament. <laughs> and then we can figure out how they're going to make that happen. Uh, I think if- that, that ends in a underwhelming nil-nil oh, draw no. decided by penalties, which Germany inevitably win. Actually, that sounds pretty good to me. Oh. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. That feels too real, Graham. I do not love how likely that feels. Um, I would say for Austria, uh, their their goal against Norway is maybe a good or a possible way they could get past Germany because it is sort of it's pressing, it's winning the ball back. It's uh, Nicole Biela scores the goal with the header, but she also starts the move. It's a loose ball sort of bouncing around. It's people making plays, and she just has a very calm uh, pass backwards. Then she recycles her run. It's a lovely, driven, sort of central ball from Verena Henshaw, the left back. Uh, and Bila's there just to get the little flick. She lets the ball do the work, but direction cushions the ball into the net, and it's 1-0 for Austria. And I think when you're playing a German team that are as solid as they are everywhere on the pitch, it takes those sort of lightning strikes to make something happen. And that is maybe one way Austria could create, obviously set pieces being the other. But ultimately, we haven't seen Germany concede so far. So anyway, Austria no. are able to find a way through. They should probably take it. That's my expert analysis, yeah. Graham. 
I mean, just looking at the, the binary stats of this matchup, Germany haven't conceded. Austria have conceded, th- uh, sorry, have scored only three goals at this tournament. Mm. So I am concerned about how they are going to get the service to uh, Bila, who you highlighted, obviously, as their, their superstar who can get those goals when the service is right. But against this Germany team, so many different things are going to have to go right in the same attacking move and also maybe go wrong for Germany for Austria to score a goal. So when I kind of boil it down to, to, to those things, even though Austria have impressed me at this tournament, I, I, I'm kind of struggling to see how they get through this matchup. Uh, I am as well. If Germany were to get out of this one, they would beat the winner of France-Netherlands. So we could get England-Germany in the final. We could also get uh, England-France in the final or someone else entirely because you never know. But Graham, we've got two more uh, round or games still to be discussed. We will be back to do just that in just a moment. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Welcome back. We are still talking uh, the Women's Euros Euro 2022. We've got our quarterfinal round. We've talked about two games. Let's talk Sweden, Belgium, Graham. And I would say this one, I think, is the game that I'm least excited for. Not just because it's a Belgium team that are sort of unheralded, we don't know as much about. But I think because... It's still a Belgium team that have made it out, but seem like they have maybe are, are happy to be in the knockout rounds, aren't necessarily looking to yeah. make the finals. Whereas they're like, we've got a Sweden team that I think would expect to, to advance, but also I think play like a Sweden team that I've come to expect. Organized, not very flashy. They grind out results. Uh, I heard a Swedish reporter talking about how this is a team that doesn't have as many players starting at club level as they have in the past. And so, it's been a less flashy performance because there isn't as much familiarity within the squad. They're not quite as sharp. And then with the heat, maybe the fitness isn't there. So I think this could potentially be a somewhat dull game because Sweden, I think, are going to know that they are the favorites, know that they should be able to find a way through. And I think we'll t- take their time uh, finding finding a way to do just that and getting that result. I feel like I've therefore guaranteed Belgium scoring in the opening five <laughs> minutes. Graham, I turn it to you. Your thoughts on this one. Maybe I'm being too negative. Yeah, I was also going to qualify what I've got to say about this game, which is pretty much I, I can't really see even even if Sweden aren't at the, their best, which they haven't really been at this tournament, you would you would expect them to have more than enough to get past Belgium. Look, brilliant achievement by Belgium to get this far, as I say, the first time they've ever made the knockout rounds of a major tournament. But, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but they are quite a limited team. They are a, a typical tournament team where they have their success has been based on a, on a strong defense. But I would also counter that their, their defense has been, the strength of their defense has been down to the performance of individuals rather than the actual structure. So against Italy, Nicola Everard, the goalkeeper had a, an excellent game. Sari Keys, a, a central defender, she was also very good and also very good against France as well. I'm not entirely sure that sort of thing is sustainable, though. So it just means that if there's any sort of dip in individual performance, that could open them right up. And Sweden, maybe this is one of the better draws that Belgium could have because Sweden, I think, have been slightly underwhelming at this tournament or the way the way I would word it is we've yet to see Sweden at their absolute best at this tournament so maybe that gives Belgium a, a slight chance you know if they were up against England or or uh, Germany or even or even France maybe they wouldn't have that that slim chance but nonetheless it feels like it feels like this is going to be a, a nailed on Sweden win and they should maybe anticipate being in the semifinals. Yeah, and I know that the response to that from people might be like, but this is a Sweden team that just smashed Portugal 5-0 in the group where they could have still gone out had they have lost that game. But that, that's a game where I, I do feel like Portugal kind of knew they had to, to make something happen, knew they had to get a result. And when you're down 3-0 at halftime, I think that sort of makes that difficult to come back from. And, and I also think when I say that Sweden, I would expect them to just be a little bit less flashy, a little bit slower. That's not even necessarily a criticism. I consider that to be veteran wisdom of they know how to kind of get the result they need to make it to the next round. And you don't need to destroy your opponent. You don't need to go up early and keep running that score up. If you have the technical ability, which they do, and you've got the ability to score goals, which it seems like they do. Stina Blaxinius finally scoring from open play is probably a positive thing heading into the knockout round. It just seems to me like a, a very veteran Sweden team that also know playing a wide open game where there's a ton of running isn't in their best interests. So I could see them trying to keep this one 
uh, Prop Joe says it on the wire. You keep it dead boring. And I could see Sweden doing that <laughs> as a deliberate tactic while still being very good, still having a ton of ability to score goals, but sort of playing within themselves to make sure that they uh, get to that next round. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Blackstenius there because I think the return of Blackstenius mm-hmm. has... That kind of sounds like a film or something, doesn't it? The return of Blackstenius. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think that's Anderson made a, movie, a big difference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with the Willem Dafoe and all the rest of them. <laughs> like every single yep. one. Yep. Um, yeah, I think Blackstenius coming into that team, she was struggling with an injury earlier in the, in the tournament. That has made a big difference for Sweden. That may be stating the obvious because she's a, a very good player. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Sweden's best performance of the tournament came in the one match that she played the full 90 minutes in. She obviously scored in that 5-0 win over Portugal, as you as you highlighted there, Taylor. But it's not just about her ability as a finisher. It's also about the balance that she brings to that Swedish attacking line as a whole. So in the first match against Holland, you have Hertig playing as the false nine of sorts, where she was de- dropping deep. And that was creating space for primarily Rolfo to conduct a lot of the attacks. But what that was doing was congesting the midfield mm-hmm. where you really want to be feeding Rolfo and the wingbacks in the channels. With Blackstenia as the number nine, Sweden have gone to this 4-3-3 shape. And the temptation there might be to think that actually they have more bodies in midfield. Maybe that makes things even more congested. And of course, technically, there is more bodies in there. But Aslani in particular has a better appreciation of space in central midfield than she does out wide, where she started against the Netherlands. And I just feel like Blixtenius as the number nine gives Sweden a much better mix where they have some midfield control, but they also have attacking threat and width. And it suits Blixtenius, of course, but it also suits the midfield and, and players like Rolfo and Aslani as well. So it's not it's not tactically revolutionary, but just having a number nine kind of gives Sweden all the fundamentals or certainly gives them a better chance of having the fundamentals that you look for in a football team, as I mentioned, control, creativity, attacking threat, width. And I don't feel like they had all those things when Blackstenius wasn't in the team when she was out injured. Also, in as much as it feels like like fate that England will lose to Germany on penalties, it also seems like England on both the men's and women's side are destined to play Sweden in knockout competitions. <laughs> so it also seems like the stage is set to get England-Sweden in the semifinal, which I'm sad about. I think I had England-Sweden as my predicted final if things worked out the way they could have. Uh, so I think if we do get England-Sweden, if we get uh, Sweden-Spain, I think both of those will be really exciting games. We could still get Belgium, you never know, but I think Sweden just have the quality across the board to make it past uh, famous last words uh, and on that note Graham the last words we will say will be about France versus Netherlands a game that I think like on paper if everyone is there could be a fascinating open-ended back and forth game I am yeah. sort of leaning towards France will win this one somewhat comfortably for me I would disagree ever so slightly right, whereas it's fight time. I, I think it depends on <laughs> I think it depends. So you say France, sorry, just to catch you correctly, you think France will win this comfortably, yeah? I think that could, as a possible outcome, if Miedema isn't Mm -hmm. playing for the Netherlands. Again, this may be stating the obvious because she's one of the best players in the world, certainly in her position, but she is just so important to this Netherlands team. Obviously, she picked up covid Last week, along with Jackie Gronin, Gronin comes back for the game against Switzerland. Miedema is still... Uh, missing and it's unclear whether she will be back for this match and obviously I don't need to tell you how good Miedema is any team would be poorer off without her but the Netherlands depend on her in the attacking third and as we saw in the second half of the one game that she had played has played against Sweden she doesn't just give the Dutch a goal threat she's conducting attacks she's dropping deep into midfield to spin the ball forward I think it was Ian Wright that said 
um, that she's not just the best number nine in the world, she's the, the best number 10 in the world. Now, whether that's true or not, you may be exaggerating slightly on the number 10 side of things there. It tells you that she's a, she's a more rounded player than maybe a lot of people give her credit for. And I think Mark Parsons has, has understood that. And I do wonder where the fluidity and just also where the drive is coming from if she is missing in this team because without Miedema it's probably Berenstein in attack again she did reasonably well against Switzerland she made some good runs in behind but there was a lack of support and there was a disconnect at times between the midfield and the attack and that is very much where Miedema is is at her best is, is connecting the midfield and the attack so if Miedema plays particularly I, th- I think this game could be a basketball match if Minima plays because also France have lost Kototo to an ACL injury and that hasn't helped their chances. But they've brought in Mallard, who came into that team against Iceland, and she just offers so much in terms of speed and directness. And she was doing this very effective thing of dropping deep to play a bounce pass or sometimes driving it forward or even just to create space for, for her teammates. And then she was sprinting into the box to get on the end of uh, chances. Does this sound like a particular uh, Dutch striker that I've just been talking about? So if the two of them are on opposite (laughs) sides, I think it could be a bit of a basketball match. I really hope Miedema makes this game, for for obvious reasons, she's a great player, I want to watch good players. But just in terms of the profile of the two teams, I I think France and Netherlands could almost have a very similar approach Mm. if Miedema plays. If if she doesn't, then yes, I probably agree France win this one quite comfortably. I'm glad you you said all that because I think I was approaching this from a Miedema won't play, which isn't informed by any sort of information. It's just she didn't play the last game against the Swiss and that was the last game I watched of them. Uh, And I think you're totally right because she is this talismanic player who can score incredible goals. But the thing that I always think of with Miedema, and we've talked about previously, she's just so good on the ball, specifically at retaining possession. It's hard to win it off of her if you do. It seems like oftentimes that means you're fouling her and then there's a free kick. And that is obviously very useful if you're the Dutch from the standpoint of you want your best player to have the ball and be creating and uh, be getting or like uh, be getting shooting opportunities. But the other thing would be, that if you're playing this kind of expansive brand of football where you want to stretch the pitch, keep possession, uh, and not lose possession because then you are stretched and wide open, having a player who can do just that and do it very well makes your system function that much better. I agree with you, Graham. I think against the Swiss, we saw it break down on occasion, and we saw it break down especially in the transition to defense. I think when they would lose the ball, they lost it in riskier positions, and they lost it more often, and they were really open. And that's why the Swiss were able to make this more of a game. It's where the the equalizer comes from. For people who didn't see, the Dutch go up courtesy of an own goal. And basically from kickoff, they press high. The press is bypassed, but they're too open. They're too spread. They've left space down the channels. And the Swiss attack right through there. They have a couple good passes. It's good play from the Swiss, but it's also the Dutch leaving themselves open. And it's one-to-one pretty quickly. And the way the Dutch take risks, the way people will step... uh, Vilms especially, I saw a couple times as, as a right back, trying to sort of cover 20 yards to win a ball, to cut out a pass. And if she doesn't get there, twice the Swiss would play it into a player. Wilms would try to get there in time. And if she didn't, that player uh, for the Swiss would lay it off. And then it would be a long ball over the top to somebody who was running into that space. And when I think about the French team, if they if they don't have Katoto, uh, uh, which they won't, they still have Gianni. They still have Cascarino. They have so much skill and speed down the channel. That's the exact space you don't want to give up. Uh, so I, I could see the Dutch really struggling if they stay that wide open. If they're more compact and if they're better at retaining possession, then I think this becomes a much more open game. And I think Miedema is central to that being mm. possible. 
I think I'm just wary of making any solid predictions about this France mm-hmm. team uh, for reasons that yep. we discussed before the tournament. But even just having watched watch them play the three games that they have played at this tournament, it has been difficult to work them out. And I, I can't really work out if they are good enough to win mm-hmm. this tournament or not. Because obviously they were brilliant in the first half of that opening game against Italy. Then they played somewhat within themselves against Belgium. And then the performance against Iceland, I know it was a bit of a dead rubber for them, but was similarly underwhelming in that game. They scored that early goal through Mallard against Iceland. And at that point, it seemed feasible that they were going to do to Iceland what they they did against uh, Italy, who just couldn't handle all the different options Mm -hmm. that you listed there, Taylor, that France have in the attack. But that didn't happen. And the concern with France going into the quarterfinals is when they're on it, they're they're arguably the most dangerous team in this whole competition, even without Katoto. I like a lot of what Mallard brings to the to the table in terms of the the speed and directness, as as I mentioned earlier. But when they when they drop out of the zone, so to speak, they they there is a there is a big drop off, and they drop off quite easily. It seems like it's quite easy to knock them out of their groove, and it happens often. And if you compare how France have played at this tournament to how Germany, certainly Germany maybe even England, how they have played, I would probably highlight those as the two front runners at this time. I feel like France always give you a chance because they, they don't keep the pressure on for the full 90 minutes. There will be pre- periods in the game where you can you can impose yourself, even in that 5-1 win over Italy, as I, I, I mentioned earlier, Italy still had a good period of the game where it felt like they were on top. So once you get to the knockout rounds and you're playing good teams like the Netherlands or if France get beyond the ner- Netherlands' uh, uh, Germany or Austria in that semi-final maybe those teams are going to face are, are going to be too good and you can't give those teams periods in the game where they're going to be on top it just feels like they're, they're not just consi- inconsistent match to match but within the matches themselves man you, you've you've taught me back around to this being closer I think part of my feeling towards France is informed by expecting them to just completely implode and they have looked fine throughout this tournament. So I think I'm then trying to recalibrate and see them for what they are and what they seem to be as a team that that kind of gets the results the way they need to, sometimes more impressively than others, but also just has the ability to make something happen when nothing seems to be going right. And a big part of that, I would add, uh, strangely, with all the attacking options they have, is Wendy Renard, the center back, who we've talked about so many times on this show in many other tournaments. But the thing that I kind of always forget about her has the aerial ability, has the ability to play play good passes, but it's those long balls that she can hit into the channels that I sometimes forget. Yeah. And she is just lethal in her accuracy, and if you don't close her down, if you give her just a little bit of time to spot that, she will hit it perfectly. And that can be the difference maker, because even if you're a team that has got all your positioning right and everybody where you need to be to crowd to one side, if you don't put that pressure on her if you let her pick her head up, she can spot a ball 50 yards away, 60 yards away, and hit it on a dime. And so I think the Dutch, again, need Miedema to sort of help organize and make sure that Wendy Renard isn't able to play some of those passes because if it is open and back and forth in those first 20 minutes or the the French are sort of getting frustrated and not able to find those spaces and those gaps, Wendy Renard has the ability to open up teams with that passing range. And so I think limiting her ability on the ball and certainly on set pieces is also going to be critical for the Dutch. But I think that's why I love doing this show, Graham, because ultimately what I come away with is I'm really excited to watch this game because lots of different things could happen and I'm excited to try to figure out what will and why. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously what happens at these major tournaments. You get the, the blockbuster games, but even even by that usual standard, that usual precedent, I think we have... 
I'm not so so excited for Sweden Belgium no. just because I think that could be one sided. But we certainly have three very interesting matches in these quarterfinals. I'm I'm very much looking forward to seeing how they pan. You out. know that we've now guaranteed that everything else is like nil nil going to penalties, and Sweden Belgium <laughs> yeah. is like five to yeah. four or something. Yeah, exactly. If there's one takeaway that listeners can 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 draw from this, it is watch Sweden Belgium because it's guaranteed now to be the match of the tournament with Belgium progressing and winning the whole thing. Somebody just before this tournament, first of all, yes, uh, reiterating that one. Somebody that we've talked about won a game like seven to six over Italy recently. So you never know. Maybe we'll get some some uh, some goals in one of these, Graham. <laughs> uh, but I feel like we've gone plenty long on the Euros, the knockout rounds, uh, previewing them. Any other predictions? Any other specific? things to mention or do you feel like we've we've done did our previewing wendy renard will win a header from a corner kick oh yeah (laughs) i would agree (laughs) that's my bold prediction i like that one i like that one graham well if she does a cheat a cheat code of a football player she is yeah she's all right she's she's i forgot that that was your your phrasing on her which is really well put if you're drafting a team is she maybe not your first pick but i'm assuming she's one of your early picks if you're building a team uh from these euros yeah, I think so. I mean, France do that thing. I said this last week where it's, it's to use the men in black thousand point button analogy. If it works one time, just keep doing yep. it. And Wendy Renard, it all seems to be focused around Wendy Renard. So whether that's hitting the balls to the channels, which gave Italy so many problems, just keep doing that for 90 minutes. If it's hitting her head from a corner kick, there's not really anyone in this tournament who can handle that so just just keep doing that just do that every five to ten minutes and you'll pretty much be this fine. is a great insight into what people what the different uh co-hosts bring to the total soccer show because i envision myself as the coach of that french team drawing up these elaborate plays with joe and coming up with like okay you're gonna drop it here then you're gonna make a run to the half space and then graham just observing all that and then saying uh do, do you see the really tall one who wins everything in the air uh kick it at her and see what happens and graham would probably yeah, win you you can always tell the old school Brits on this podcast. <laughs> Me and Ryan are just vibes FC, long ball FC. I would love, we should do that series where Joe and I organize one team on Football Manager that we don't know how to play. You and Ryan organize another and we see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think there would be a stark contrast in the two approaches <laughs> and your team would win. I don't. <laughs> handsomely. I agree with the first part. I'm not sure I agree with the second part. I feel like you all might get that result. <laughs> we can do that another time. But for now, Graham, thank you for talking about the Euros. I, I very much appreciate it. Uh, we will both be back to do some listener questions answering on Thursday, as well as another episode of Soccer 101. And as I said in the intro tomorrow, it's myself and Joe Lowry talking about the U.S. women's national team and their win in the CONCACAF W Championship. Graham Ruffin, thank you so much once again, my friend. Please drink some water and try to stay cool. <laughs> Yeah, water or beer, one of the two. Thank you, Sarah Rotwell. Either one. They both do the same thing, I'm pretty sure. Listeners, (laughs) thank you so much for listening. Please don't fact check either of those last statements, and we will talk to you very soon. 